Good morning. Tell you, there is not a place I would rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you this morning. Amen? Amen. I know it's a holiday weekend and we have a lot of people traveling. I know we probably also have some people visiting for the holidays and we're grateful that you are here. Um, We're actually going to kind of begin this week a series that's going to span for about six weeks that examines this community that we live in, community life and and what it looks like and the different elements of it. And as we walk up to this series, I think the most fitting passage that we have to begin with is Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25. So I would like for you all to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're going to be this morning, talking about the value of being together. Now, while you're turning there, I want you to all think with me a little bit about your garage. Now, some of you are not going to want to admit the state of your garage, and and that's kind of where I'm at right now. I know uh, it's quite a mess in a lot of capacities, but there's one particular corner in our garage, and it's the paint corner. You I know not everyone has a paint corner. In early service, I was going to say everyone, and I looked over and I saw Larry Bell sitting there, and I had to change my, change my, there are some caveats. There are a few of you here who maybe don't have a paint corner, but almost all of you do, and you're ashamed to admit it. I have so much paint shoved in the corner. I think it's paints from three houses ago and 14 projects ago, and it's just piled up, and really it's to the point where I probably couldn't find the right paint if I needed it, but for some reason, I feel the need to stash my paint. Um, I I think some of it is that it's hard to dispose of, and so it's easier just out of sight, out of mind. But most of it is, we all know, and in in the back of our mind, we think, what if I need it? You know, what if that coffee table that I painted gets a scratch and I can't match that paint just quite the same? Or what if I need to repair the cabinet that we remodeled a couple of years ago? Or what about the, what if the kids color on the walls with a Sharpie? We might need to go out there and figure out which paint can to use. And, And if any of you have ever had that happen, you know what it's like to go to the paint stash. And you pick up a can of paint and you look and it's like, you always pour the paint over the label, right? So you're never sure exactly what color it is. So you carry it in the house and you're holding it up, trying to figure out which one matches which. And finally you think, I don't know, let's try this one. And so you think, I'm going to pry the lid off. And then like an angle grinder and a chisel later, you finally have pried the lid off. And then what happens, what do you see when you look in this old can of paint? Y'all all know, it's this kind of hard to describe, like odd, like... A separated liquid mixture. There's chunks in places, there's usually a a skim of some sort of oily substance on the surface, and then there's some sort of clear liquid. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's water in some of the paints. And then there's these all these colors that don't look anything like the color on the outside of the paint can floating inside of it. And then there's like this solid puck of some sort of solids that seems to coagulate together. And if it's been there long enough, you can kind of swirl the paint can and it kind of clunks around. Y'all, know, y'all all know what I'm talking about. You've had that experience. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
I want to look at this passage with a set of fresh eyes. You know, this is a classic passage. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Some of you have been beat over the head with this passage to encourage faithful church attendance. And I, I want to spend some time looking at it closely together. I certainly think it exhorts us towards that. But I think a fresh eyes and maybe a, a fresh analogy will help you visualize a little bit the value of this passage, hence the paint. He begins uh, with an exhortation to consider. Now, consideration is something that we're actually all quite familiar with. We have a lot of considerations that we make every day. We think about a lot of different things. So you could even run through what happened to you this morning, and you'll find that you made a lot of decisions just in getting here. So we have our morning considerations. Probably the first one is, should I snooze that alarm once or should I go ahead and get out of bed? And y'all are at late service, so we all know you snoozed. Early service got a different analogy, all right? So that's decision number one. Then you you roll out of bed and you think, all right, well, what am I going to wear today? What am I going to eat for breakfast? Am I going to eat breakfast? If it's a weekday, maybe you spend some time in the morning planning your day. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What are the things that are most important to accomplish today? Decision after decision, often small decisions, but they fill most of our time. Now, we all have different routines that we go through throughout the day, but there's another set of afternoon, midday considerations that we make. Um, If you're working, and um, depending on the type of work that you have, you may be solving problems and thinking about those. You may be interacting with people and and wondering how to communicate different items. Maybe you're in sales and you're thinking, how do I sell this item to the most amount of people? Maybe you're an accountant and you spend your time thinking about making the numbers add up. But all day long, we give considerations to things. What is this worth? How do I sell this? What did that mean? Who needs to know about this? Who do I need to talk to? Who does this need to be shared with? And then we get home at the end of the day and we have our evening considerations. What will I have for dinner? What am I going to watch on television? Is it time for bed? What did I forget to think about today? Then you spend some time thinking about that. Should I answer that email that just popped up on my phone? You know, we spend our days considering many things. But if you were honest with yourself, you would find that there's also a subset of tasks that you don't have to think much about at all. There's certain things that happen during the day that you give no consideration to whatsoever. And I'm not just talking about the times when we're lazy. I'm talking about the moments in life where maybe you've been driving down the road and all of a sudden you're five miles further than you last remembered and you're not exactly sure how you got there. You've all done that, haven't you? And you didn't fall asleep. But what happened? Your brain went on cruise control. You had a moment where you were so familiar with what was happening that you got to stop your consideration and you drifted to another place. In fact, there are a lot of routines, I believe, that we have as part of our day that we no longer give consideration to. You could probably think of some, and they would be different for all of us, certain times and places that we're so familiar and we know what to expect that we just don't have to think about it. We can stop considering and we just go on cruise control. The writer of Hebrews starts this very important passage with this admonition, with this important directive. He starts by saying, hey, I need you to be deliberate. I need you to consider something. You know, I think about the paint in the corner of our garage, and the reason it's settled is because it goes unstirred. 
And the reason it goes unstirred is because it was put on a shelf and then it's given no further consideration. There it is just sitting there with no one thinking about it and not thinking about anything. And as I look at people, I have to come to this conclusion. I have to recognize this. People are the exact same way. We have a natural resting state. We all default to this state when we are unprovoked and unstirred. We all have a cruise control mode. Uh, I don't need to think about this mode. And it's easy to shift into, especially when we're doing something that's familiar and routine. Like waking up on a Sunday morning, getting dressed, grabbing donuts and grabbing your Bible and coming to find your pew and and sitting in your spot and waiting for the next predictable event that's going to show up in the order of service and saying your prayers and going home. The writer begins this passage by saying, hey, hold on just a second. You need to think about something. You need to be deliberate. You cannot be passive in what I'm about to ask you to do. This is something that you're called to think about, something you're called to work on, maybe a sort of a a moving target, but this is something that's going to require your continual attention. And I believe as we step into this passage about togetherness, this is probably the single most impactful statement in the verse. And it's also the source of most of our problems and discontent about church. We fall into this routine, and we stop being deliberate, and we stop giving consideration to the bigger questions, questions like, why? And when we do that, we see that the paint starts to settle, and with time, it stops being what it was intended to be. So just what is it that we're supposed to be thinking about, that we're supposed to be considering, that we're supposed to be giving deliberate thought to this morning. Well, the text goes on, and the next statement is this. He says, you need to consider how to stir up one another. How to stir. This implies that, that we are to move people away from their natural state of rest, from that settling state that we all tend to drift to. We need to spend deliberate time thinking about how we're going to accomplish this. In our consideration, we may notice that we've settled. We may notice that we've drifted. We may determine that we shouldn't be the way that we are. And when we come together, our thoughts are supposed to be centered around stirring one another up and fixing it. As you look at the word for stir up, you find that in other uh, settings, it actually kind of has a negative connotation. Um, You might use a word like provoke or prod or incite. Now, um, this most definitely isn't meant in this passage to carry any sort of uh, harsh tone. I don't believe that at all. But it is a word that moves us past just pleasantries. It's a word that requires action and and movement, a deliberate bumping up against our natural state. You see, we come here to be pushed outside of our comfort zone. We come here to be pushed towards a place that we would not land on our own. And that place is defined next in the text. He says to stir up one another to love and good deeds. You know, it may seem on the surface like love and good deeds are a pretty natural place to land. But I'm not so sure when we really consider 
the situation. We're certainly inclined, as Jesus might say, to love those who would love us back. That's pretty easy for us. That's pretty natural for us. We're inclined to do good to those who we know are going to return the favor. But as his followers, we're called to so much more than that. In Luke 6, 32 through 35, we read this. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now I look at that and I have to admit that's not natural. That is not the state the paint settles to. If we are not stirred, I do not believe we will act this way. I mean, I look at myself, I look at all of us as a culture, and what do we do? We tend to argue and disagree and promote our own interest. And so what do we need? We need to be stirred. I look at myself, and I, I see all of us, and I think we're, our natural state is to desire good things, but we, in doing so, we look for those who are going to help us, those who are going to scratch our back if we scratch theirs. But when it comes time to someone who we don't think is going to be helpful, who we don't think deserves our good actions, then we tend to withdraw those from them. That's the natural state that we tend to float towards. We need to be stirred. And when we're stirred, something beautiful emerges. We begin to see others different, love, and we begin to act different, good works. John 19, 34 through 35 says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. And just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's the beautiful thing for the world to see. Instead of looking into the bucket and, and seeing clumps of, of, of pigment and clumps of binder and this oily water like, like we all know, the world should look into the church and they should see smooth, beautiful color, a oneness that, that isn't duplicated anywhere else, a, a synergy, a, a, a better togetherness that, that can't be duplicated anywhere else. Something miraculous happens when we get together and we become one and we are stirred. So as we look at this, we see that the writer of Hebrews, just in, in one short sentence, has just painted this beautiful, amazing picture of something to strive for. He has laid this goal out for us. He said, hey, look, look, you need to give deliberate thought into not drifting toward this state of, of selfishness, but use one another to keep your attitudes and your actions elevated. And, and as I look at this picture that painted, I, I know that it's a beautiful one. I think few of us would argue with this. It realistically reflects so much about what we experience as humans. We understand that, that we need other people. The passage kind of tips its hat a little bit to our struggle with selfishness and acknowledges that we need some help, and it recognizes that there is a better place to land. But then the writer gets really practical. The next phrase is, not neglecting to meet together. In other words, you can't do this if you aren't spending time with one another. You know, the phrase, meet together, 
I think that it implies a, a deliberate, coordinated event. So, in my opinion, I think that this is very much indicative of, of corporate, wor- corporate worship. I don't believe it excludes other gatherings, but I believe specifically um, there is a parallel to corporate worship. There's a vagueness, I'll admit that. I think it gives room for a lot of different Christian gatherings and times that we spend together. In fact, I would say that there are a few elements of our togetherness that maybe aren't associated just with this time of worship. You certainly can't do everything that you're called to do in this passage by having your hiney in the seat. There's a lot more required than just showing up and and listening to someone speak, but it's certainly not less than that. I believe this passage is talking about deliberate meetings that would include corporate worship but not be limited to it. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how you parse it out or where the meetings occur. Here's what I know absolutely for certain. They must. We are told to be together. You see, just like paint is a mixture of a a lot of different components The Lord's church is made up of of a similar type of situation, of a lot of people with a lot of different talents pulling their their resources together and becoming better when they are one. 1 Corinthians 12 is a passage we've looked at several times over the last few weeks. I want to read verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. In other words, you are unique and, and different, and each of you are talented in different ways, and each of you contribute in different ways. But it is only when we are stirred together that the true beauty of the Lord's church appears and emerges like it's supposed to. The principle, the directive here is clear. You will not be able to display the love and good works of a believer alone. We need one another to do that. Being together is very very important. Now, the next little phrase uh, gives me a little hope because I realize that they struggle with the same things we struggle with. Because the next phrase, the writer of Hebrews admits that it was the habit of some of them to neglect gathering together. This means early on, 2,000 years ago, it was already a problem. Now, if you put yourself in their shoes a little bit, I think we can understand probably what they're wrestling with. In fact, all of Hebrews is kind of setting up this picture of how this new covenant kind of superseded and is better than the old. And so it talks about how sacrifices are no longer necessary because Jesus stepped in and and was the sacrifice. It talks about how this, this temple arrangement and the Holy of Holies isn't a thing anymore because as believers we now stand in the presence of God mediated by Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews really kind of obliterates most of the traditional ways that they would have gathered and worshiped. And so you can imagine as this early Christian, you're looking at all of this situation and saying, yeah, but I don't have to do that anymore. I mean, Jesus came in and, and, and changed everything. Um, it's actually understandable, and it's not that different than what we ourselves think. We look throughout Scripture, and we can say there's no legal requirement 
for us to gather together for a meeting. It's not a contingency of salvation. I mean, Jesus paid the price. He paid the price alone. It's done. Our works don't garner salvation for us. Uh, We have no place for being dogmatic about church attendance because that's not in Scripture. That's not what this is about. This is about a relationship with Jesus, and and we make our stance, and we make our argument because we understand you don't come to the building and participate in a ritual and offer sacrifice and play church anymore more. That was Old Testament stuff, and that's exactly what they were thinking. But Hebrews comes in and it says, well, hold on just a second. Consider. Just, just let us consider. Because I don't think you're looking at the whole picture. Just because something isn't required doesn't mean you don't need it. That doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, being together is good, and not being together, we know it's, it's bad. That's when we drift. And while we might be tempted to point out the, the technical truth that going to church is not something we have biblical permission to be dogmatic about, we have to also admit that as we survey the New Testament, there's nothing at all whatsoever that lends itself to the idea of a lone Christian. That's not ever how it was modeled. We don't see that. The model presented, in fact, would show significantly more frequent gathering than we experience. A lot more togetherness than we have in this disconnected, individualistic society. So our excuses on this point strike the same deaf tone of those early believers who have adopted the same habit of so many of us. You're correct. You, You don't have to be here. Salvation doesn't come from church attendance, but being together does change you. It plays a role in your sanctification and the process of making you holy and pressing you towards what you should be. It keeps you encouraged. It keeps you stirred up. It presses you away from the natural state that you're going to drift to if you're left alone and towards the state that you're called to be as a New Testament Christian. Paint has the same habit of sitting idly by and just separating over time. It would rather do that. That is its natural state. And so did the members of the early church, and so do some of us struggle with this. And the writer of Hebrews is saying this needs to be fixed This isn't the standard. This isn't the ideal. And if you will give a little bit of consideration to it, you will see that we need to be together. We need to be together because we are meant to be together and because together we are different. But alone, we get discouraged. And so as he's wrapping up, he points us back to the beautiful reasons why we should desire this. And it's because we need encouragement. Now, here's where I have to break from my analogy a little bit, because you typically stir paint with a stick. And uh, I think that would uh, not be exactly the analogy we should use here. In fact, I I think we've tried to do that a little bit too much. We kind of whip out the stick and we think, we're just going to whip everyone into shape. Forget this encourage. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just encourage with the stick. Let's get everyone stirred up. And so we expect people to come to the building and we want to take the stick and we want to just stir. And that's not the picture that I see painted here. We've been too quick to land on that. What I see here is a positive stirring, not a negative The idea here isn't an encouragement from fear. That's not what I read in this passage. I read of a growth through support. In fact, you don't really need a stick to stir paint. It takes a little more time, but it's a little more gentle. But y'all have all seen what it looks like. 
if you start swirling a paint can, maybe if it's been separated for a long time, it would take a long time, but you just give it a little swirl, and what do you see? Well, first, you see a few of those layers that have developed on the top starting to twist and intermingle a little bit. And you swirl a little more, and, and they start to kind of blend, and they, they, it starts to get a little opaque, and the clear, the clear liquid kind of goes away, but there's still some chunks in it. And you swirl, and you swirl, and you swirl. And over time, all of those little particles that were separated start clinging to one another, and they're mixed, and they bump into one another, and they move, and as they move, they grab onto other ones, and they continue to swirl. And then if you do it long enough, even the little sticky things that are stuck off to the edge eventually can't resist and they get they get pulled into the flow and pulled into the stream and they're they're mixed together and they're stirred up that's what i see here that's the picture i think is trying to be painted in hebrews this isn't the stirring with a stick it's the linking of hands we're, we're here to pull one another along. We have these front runners that are cheering on those in the back, and then they get tired, and those in the back come up to the front, and they, they cheer on those who used to be the front runners. And, and we end up with this synergistic effect of togetherness where, where things are so much better together. It makes things so special. We don't come here for salvation. We don't show up as an offering to God. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to do this. But he knows that we need each other. We need encouragement. We come to participate in the stirring. Finally, as we see ourselves moving close to the end, the momentum grows. This passage ends with an odd statement about the day. On one hand, it seems that he might have kind of missed the mark a bit, because here we are 2,000 years later, and this day that he says was drawing near still hasn't come. But the truth is, if you were being honest with yourself, you know exactly what he's talking about. These writers knew, readers knew exactly what he was talking about also. Nothing in the text up until this point has, has um, talked about this day whatsoever. Nothing has set the scene for this statement. It isn't an idea that has been previously introduced. That tells me something, that it was something very familiar to him, them. The fact that the writer could just throw in this phrase, the day, and expect them to immediately understand means they knew, and you know as well, the concept of the day of judgment we have this pressing awareness that our time is limited. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 uses the same phrase. It says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You say they knew this day was coming, this day of reckoning, this day of judgment, just like you. Whether it be the second coming of Christ during our lifetime or the ever-approaching slumber of death that sends us there, we know that it's just around the corner. The writer of James says, life's a vapor. Life's a vapor. The day is drawing near. And the writer says, you need to consider because you see it. You know that it's near. And because of this pressing reality... Because of what you know, it should cause you, with the tiniest bit of consideration, to feel a sense of urgency. You see, you may be putting off cleaning out that garage, but eventually the garage is getting cleaned out. 
eventually someone's going to go through the shelves and look through the paint and take it where it needs to be. And I wonder, are you going to be a can of stale, rusty, unstirred paint on this day of reckoning? Or is something else going to happen? What's going to be found on that day? You know, as I look out across the religious landscape of our culture, I think there's a lot of churches that are going to be found on the day with a sealed lid. And if you could somehow pry it off, inside you would see a bunch of individual components in the can, but they're not mixed, and they've forgotten that they're paint, and they've forgotten what paint is for. I think we also might find some churches that have been well-stirred, some cans that you could open up and you would see vibrant colors, well-blended, but the can's full, and, and the beautiful paint that you find there still seems a little bit out of place when it's stored in the garage. You know, as I look forward to the day, and I think about what the day is going to be like, and I, I wonder what he is hoping for, this is something that becomes evident. We're called to bring color to a world of gray. Love and good works is what we're called to. Those things don't happen in a can. They happen in the context of a world that has settled, a world that has lost its vibrancy, a world that has lost its color, a world that has been uh, collapsed into self-centered attitudes and actions, everything the opposite of love and good works that we see. We work and serve in a world that is grayed by the effects of sin. But when we are stirred, we are stirred into something different. We are a people who are called to, to break the effects of sin and bring color to the world around us, to bring life to the world. As God's people, we get to go out and, and push a bit of vibrancy back into this drab world around us. And I hope that on that day, Jesus doesn't return to find a bunch of well-stirred paint cans in the garage. I hope on that day that he comes back and he sees a world whose walls have been painted with the beauty of a people who have spent time together and stirred one another up and then they got out of that pew and they served and they loved because that's what we're called to be. We're called to take the world that's gray and give it a splash of color. We're called to take a, a dull existence and, and restore a bit of its vibrancy we're called to, to take the, this drab view that we see when we look out in culture and we're supposed to, to transform it into beauty again. To take this grim world and give it a, a, a splash of hope. To take something that we look out and isn't very desirable, something that we don't want and transform it into what? To, to something that's desirable Take something that's easy to ignore and turn it into something that we can't turn away from. You know, this is something we teach our little pew packers every Sunday night. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We change the way people see the world. We paint the world with our love and good deeds. But the color, the color comes from being stirred together. It's not something that you can do alone. What we do here 
is so much more than an attendance mark, so much more than something to appease your conscience or to remind your kids that you prioritize faith. What we do here is indispensable to our calling as faithful followers of Christ. Togetherness is necessary. It's not to be neglected because it is how God planned and designed for us to work. There is no place I would rather be because there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more purposeful, nothing more satisfying, nothing more eternal than stirring one another so that we can paint. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I hope you've been stirred a bit today. I hope you've been encouraged to go and love and do good things this week, but I hope that you won't stay gone long. I hope that you will be back and plugged in and stay connected and stay encouraged because the time ahead is short. Being together is such a blessing. Being together changes me. It changes you. It changes the world. There truly is no place I would rather be. You know, becoming part of a community takes time and deliberate effort, but it's vital that you put in the work. And staying part of a community takes time and deliberate effort, but it's vital that you put in this work. If you don't have this, we want to help. If you're struggling with this, we want to help. Whatever your need might be, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing.